Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for Church Online today. And, and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just is supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and, and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, but, but also, we don't want to be uh, your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and, and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. Good morning, Rest Church. Let's give it up for the Lord this morning. Come on, don't act like you're Baptists. Let's give it up for the Lord this morning. Um, I am happy to be here. Life has, um, it's, it's been challenging. And to get here this morning was a challenge. Um, there's been folks in our congregation who've been praying uh, specifically for me this past week. Lots of stuff going on with work. And needless to say, God opened a way for me to set in my man cave slash office according to the irs it's an office really but i got to sit in there yesterday and just listen to the lord and be able to for the first time in a few months just get to preach and i can't tell you how excited i am to be standing here and how sorry i am that it'll be 75 minutes so we've all heard the quote from Benjamin Franklin that says, the only certain thing in life is death and... But that's a crude ripoff of the actual old Arabic proverb that goes like this. Only three things in life are certain. Birth, death, and change. How many can attest to, to that being a true fact or a true statement in your life. Time has a way of changing things. It has a way of, of changing the land or the landscape. You know, uh, if, you, if you've been following along in the news, um, you, you know that Lake Mead is going dry, right? I mean, they're finding cars like every day. They're finding safes. They're finding you know, all kinds of crazy things. And if you've ever been to Hoover Dam, Lake Mead is a sight to take in. Beautiful, crisp, kind of emerald green waters. And, and, and time has had a way of changing that landscape. We, when, when we lived out in Colorado, when we were out there pastoring, 
I remember I would walk out on my front porch and look out in the mountain range. We lived at 8,100 feet in the heart of the San Juan mountain range. And I remember we would walk out and in the, the mountain that was right in front of my house, there had been the, what they called the million acre forest fire. And so up there looking on that particular mountain, it was basically sticks just standing that were completely dead. Time has a way of changing even the landscape. How many of you know about this? Time has a way of changing our bodies, right? Some of you woke up this morning and and you just like looked the other way to look at the alarm clock and you got a crick in your neck. Can I get an amen? Or maybe that first step that you took out of the bed was like, Right, right, you were like the tin man. Time has a way. I remember at one point in my life, I couldn't grow a beard or, or, for nothing. I couldn't grow a beard for nothing. And, and, and I remember, I used to say to Molly all the time, man, I just want to be able to grow a beard. I just, I look like Patches O'Houlihan because I, I, I can't grow a beard. And, and, and time had a way of changing that because as I got older, right now today, you're like, well, you don't, you, maybe your first time guess you're like, you don't have a beard. Well, I did a few days ago. I had a full beard. And someone at work said to me, you won't just have a mustache. And I said, if you know me, Summer knows this. If you tell me I won't do something and it's within ethical and theological bounds that I can say yes to, you bet I'm going to do it. And so we're in the middle of the audit and we're talking and they were like, there's no way you'll do it. And I said, I can pull off the Tom Selleck. I can do it. And the auditor said to me, he said, no, you're gonna be Saddam Hussein. (laughs) And I said, okay, fine. So I went home that afternoon and I put on my Tom Selleck. And I have a photo for you. Right here this morning, here's my Tom Selleck. If you guys will pull up that photo. (laughs) I was going to wear that to church today, but Ezekiel, my oldest one, had no part of it. In fact, it is literally, Molly was like, I so wish I had recorded this. I walk out of the, um, our bedroom, down in the hallway, come into the kitchen, and I meet Ezekiel, poor, beautiful, little 10-year-old, like 36 pounds, skinny little nothing, Ezekiel. And he doesn't say a word. In fact, this is his reaction. And he begins to turn, and as he turns to run up the steps, he starts yelling, take off that mustache, take off that mustache. And for an hour, I kid you not, for an hour, that kid screamed from upstairs in our house, take off that mustache, you look so creepy, Dad. And I coax him finally downstairs with a, with a movie. I'm like, we'll have a movie time. He literally comes in with a cover over his head, sits on the couch, will not look at me. He forgets twice in the movie that I have this mustache. And he looks back to say something to me. And when he does, every time he screams and goes, take off that mustache. So yesterday morning, as any reasonable father would do, I got rid of my Tom Selleck. But time has a way of changing even our bodies. 
It changes the way that we communicate, especially the words we use when communicating with one another. If we take a trip down etymology lane, you'll quickly find that while we might be speaking the same language in English as our American forefathers who came and settled this country did, we are speaking a totally different subset of words. The word warp, for example which comes from the Old English word whirlpon, something perhaps to do with the twisting motion that your body uses when you hurl a thing. So I got this football here. And the thought process of this word warp was, was essentially the motion that your body uses when you get ready to throw something is warp. You're warping your body as they would think through it. If you were kind of thinking through that a little bit um, deeper, um, you are warped when you throw your back out of alignment, right? You have warped your back. So why didn't they just use the word throw instead of warp, right? You know, like, hey, why didn't they just say throw? Well, well if, we, if we look at the etymology of the word throw, it's because, wait for it, it originally meant to twist. The word throw originally meant to twist. Yeah, that's right. The twisting motion that your body makes when throwing. It may have led to the word twist, meaning to toss. And warp and twist traded places. In fact, probably what they would have used, the word that they would have used for throwing would have not been to warp or to twist, but Isaac, if you'll stand up, they would have said to cast the football. No, you keep it. It's your football. I stole it from your room. So who wants to cast the ball with me after church? As we look at our text today, we find Paul encouraging Timothy to, to understand that a certain thing, change, is going to happen to the church. Say, change is coming. It's always going to be coming. It's always going to be evolving. And so as you open your Bibles with me today, 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. I kind of want to talk through this. I want to recap kind of where we've been. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Last week, A.B. covered verses 1 and 2, where Paul is specifically exhorting Timothy to preach the word in A. A.B. kind of broke down the message in these four kind of ways to Paul is asking Timothy to preach the word faithfully. Say faithful, church. To preach the word consistently. To preach the word pastorally. To preach the word patiently. When we think about the pastor or the person who is to fulfill the pulpit, we want a pastor who is faithful at following God's word, faithful at being a steward of teaching, who is consistent in what he says. He's not wavering back and forth, who is pastorally in nature. He cares. He comes concerning. He isn't sharp in his rebuke. He isn't sharp in his reproof, who is Preaching the word patiently, not domineering over us, demanding that we take the world by storm immediately, but patient in us like Christ Jesus is with us. This week, we're going to review 
the last and kind of final thought around this particular thing where Paul is exhorting Timothy to preach the word theologically. To preach the word theologically. And so if you would, let's open up our Bibles and let's read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning, and God, we ask that here in this room at this time, as we come to the table to eat of the bread of life, to take and partake of your word, that, Lord, that you would move in our hearts. That, God, we would not see this as, as, as a time of a person giving a speech or, or as a time of listening, but as a time of worship. As we, as a corporate body, come together to, to hear your word, to hear the oracles of your scriptures. And may we embed them in our hearts, Lord, that we may follow and seek after you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul clearly anticipated that the church was going to face a time of reckoning in regard to broken theology. Many pastors read this particular text and immediately say, he's clearly talking about today, right? In fact, if, if you are greater than 50 years old, I'm going to ask you a question, and, and, and no one's going to point fingers at you. But if you've heard that your entire life, can I get an Amen. Every generation of pastors would look at the current generation that they are in and would say he's talking about the here and now. And in some regards, that is correct. But being that Paul is speaking in present um, participle tense, I believe it's correct to assume that he knew that the church was already facing a time of broken theology and that that would only increase as time Went on. For example, Paul dealt sharply with the church in Galatia. In fact, if you read the first chapter of the book of Galatians, what you'll find is that Paul, he opens up kind of like taking a, a, a machete right to him. He, he's like, who bewitched you? How could you? I am astonished that you have so quickly fallen away from the gospel that I have given you. And this is because the Judaizers had came into the church in Galatia and had begun to teach this works-based theology. And he said, it's not by works that you are saved, for it is by grace that you are saved, not of your own doing, so that no one could boast. And so Paul lays out this clear theology that we see brought forth by Martin Luther in the Great Reformation. It is by grace alone that we are saved, on the basis of Christ alone. Not of us, nothing of us. And, and then additionally, what we know is also prior to this, Paul has written to the church in Corinth. And, and Corinth was jacked up, right? Right, Corinth was jacked up. If, if, if you don't know, th these dudes were getting hammered on the line for the Lord's Supper. Yeah, you heard me right. 
They're coming to church as if they're going to the club and they're leaving tipsy. Not, not just that, but they're, they're creating um, kind of this divide, this apartheid kind of uh, different divide in their community where people would come and they would engorge themselves. They would be gluttonous and others would leave hungry. And then additionally, we have this dude who's in the community who is sleeping with his mother, his stepmother. This church was jacked up, Right? And so I believe it's correct to say that Paul was speaking for the then as well as the now. Because what we know from the New Testament church is there was no perfect church. That's why you can't find one today. Additionally, he knew that bad actors would never, never stop attempting um, to sway the church away from sound teaching. Notice the language in verse 3 again here, church. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Call it what you will. Divine insight, prophecy, intuition. Paul knew the tendency of man is always going to be moving towards selfishness. Therefore, it's not correct. Therefore, if not corrected and constantly reminded, the church will always diff, drift towards incorrect theology. We need to constantly be disciplined and reminded of the truth. We don't like it. Can we all say amen to that? Who likes to be scolded by the Lord? No one. No one. But we, we need that. We need that reproof and rebuke because if left to our own devices, if left to our own proclivities, if left to what you want to do when you follow your heart, you'll find death and destruction on the other side every single time. That's why the scriptures say there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to what, Johan? Destruction. Death and destruction. Let's take a pit stop here real quick, though. What exactly does Paul mean in verse 3? Come back to verse 3 for me. When he says sound teaching, if you'll throw up verse 3, what exactly does he mean when he says sound teaching? teaching. And, and, and this is actually something, if you understand the Pauline letters, Paul deals with this word, sound teaching, over and over and over and over. It's something that is at the very forefront of the mind of the readers of the Pauline letters during that time. So let's kind of dive into that. And, and, I, because, and I want to dive into it because I don't want you to hear at any point today when I say sound teaching, I don't want you to think at any point when I say sound teaching, Cody is introducing Projecting his thoughts on his theology, okay? I'm gonna make sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that you do not leave this place going, Cody is interjecting his thoughts on what he believes to be sound theology. In fact, I'm going to share more scripture than I probably ever would recommend any preacher to do in a sermon around this topic for that very reason. 
1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accord, uh, accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands what, church? Nothing. Nothing. So it all comes back to this sound teaching or a different doctrine. If he teaches anything different, he knows nothing. 2 Timothy 1.13. Follow the pattern of what church? That you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Titus 1.9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy uh, word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Titus 1.13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of the people who turn away from the truth. So, so what's he leading up to? What, what is he getting at? What is sound doctrine? Okay, you've told me, you've read to me. He's talking about this thing over and over. Sound doctrine, the truth. Rebuke those who speak against it. So here we are, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. As I urged you when I was in Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different, what church? nor to devote themselves to myths and endless theologies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that there is the, that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly, the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual immorality, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to what church? So there it is. He gives us the definition. He tells us, he, he lays out kind of, and it's not an exhaustive list. If you go back a few months to our sermon series through the, through the first Timothy, that, that verse by verse, and I believe I, I, I preached on this particular um, text right here, but it's not exhaustive in nature. But what he's saying is he's cluing us into the very nature that would be anti-sound doctrine. And he's saying, hey, if we embrace these things, if we live our life in these ways, we are not living within the confines of sound doctrine. It comes back to the baseline teachings of personal devotion to Christ Jesus and forsaking sin. See, the, the reality is, church, is that God hates our sin. Do you know that? He hates, he abhors, he detests our sin. And the reality is, is that the standard is perfection. The standard is perfection. 
Raise of hands, who's perfect in this room? No one. The scriptures even tell us there is no one who is perfect. No, not one. Which is why we needed Jesus. Here in 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, as we think through this sound doctrine terminology, Paul is saying that the church will arrive at a time when the core teaching of Christian faith will be brought into question. A time will arrive when what is right is considered wrong and what is wrong is considered right. Not to sound like an old curmudgeon, but if we can be honest, isn't that right now? Isn't that what we get fed every day when we tune in to Instagram? Isn't that what we get fed every time we go to Reddit and try to find something out? We get told that the very core values that we hold as Christ followers is wrong. And we get told the things that the scriptures say are wrong is right and should be celebrated and we should throw parades for it. Paul puts it this way in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Let's just pause right there. Lovers of self. Let's not, let's, let's not try to marginalize any one community. In fact, I, I talked to a visitor a few weeks back and he's telling me his testimony and, and, and he had this great shame about his testimony and about how that he felt sorrowful for what he did. And, and he said, you know, I'm just an addict. And I said, I said, I'm gonna stop you right there. We're all addicts. It's just our vice is different from person to person. The reality is, is that we're all addicts. You're addicted to whatever your sin is, and that is your addiction. If you could stop doing it, you would have already done it, right? If you could stop loving yourself and stop seeing yourself as is this constant need to gratify, you would have already done that. And so from step one right here, we all fall in this category. We are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, um, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but uh, denying its power. Avoid such people. Paul is telling Timothy a Time will come when this will be the culture. But we shouldn't be surprised when the world acts like the world. But we should be surprised when pastors and teachers and prophets espouse things that are contradictory to Scripture. That's why Paul finishes this out and says, avoid such people. 
We shouldn't be surprised when the world acts like the world. We shouldn't be surprised when they are wayward, when they follow things that are contrary to scripture, but we should absolutely be surprised and rebuke and avoid people who call themselves to be leaders of the Christian faith, who teach the very things that are anti-scripture, anti-sound doctrine. I understand that teaching against such things is don't throw anything at me. Finding your own truth or sex outside of marriage or homosexuality or gluttony or finding yourselves in constant credit card debt because you can't say no to yourself every time you go to the store is not vogue in our church culture. But it is clear when we look at what Paul meant by sound doctrine, this is exactly what he had at the top of his mind. That a time would come when the church needed heralds who would be willing to take the bullets, who would be willing to take the arrows, who would be willing to be beaten, killed, in order that the church may be preserved from the black spot of sin. Verse three, look back at it. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Paul's essentially saying, like a radio station or, or like a TV channel, folks are going to tune out the things that they don't want to hear and they're going to tune in what suits their lifestyle, what makes them feel better about themselves. That's why you will find churches today, even in this own community, you will find them um, a fool that espouse emotionally gratifying messages. You'll find people flocking to those places because when they leave, I feel so good about myself. At the same time, you will find churches where pastors are faithfully, and I mean faithfully, preaching the word of God to many empty seats. Because in Western culture especially, we have succumbed to going to the place that most aligns with our personal worldview and not the place that most aligns with correct biblical teaching. As A.B. alluded last week, this is why so many churches avoid the exact style of teaching that we do here, expository preaching, verse by verse, word by word, book by book. It's because when you do that, you absolutely cannot avoid controversial topics. When you do that, you have to come to a reckoning when Jesus says, die to yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Before you say you're my disciple, consider the cost. You will not have a home. You will not have a family. And some days you won't have a meal. But that's what it means to be a Christian. You can't avoid the hard stuff. I want to be clear. 
to teach what the scriptures plainly say is not unloving, as some would suggest. In fact, I would say that it is the very definition of love to warn and to say this is what the scriptures say is right and holy. This is what the scriptures say is the path to eternal life. Because Jesus himself said the way is narrow, but the path to destruction is broad and wide. In fact, I love deeply those who find themselves on the opposite side of what Paul calls sound doctrine. That's why we must share the truth in love, church. And that's why we, we must use the scriptures as, as we just read here from the writings of Paul. We, we, we aren't to use them as stones to, to bludgeon our neighbor, to say, you're going to hell, you heathen. No, that, that's not the picture that we get from Paul. In fact, Paul calls for us to set to mend broken bones, to, to use the truth in love like setting a broken bone. You don't come to a person who has a broken arm and say, let me help you with that, brother. No, you, you come and you gently mend it back together. We are to use the scriptures as truth in love. But within that same token, when the church fails to teach what the scriptures say, the church ceases to be the church. The only protection the church has from becoming rudderless is to anchor ourselves personally to the scriptures and hold those who preach personally accountable to its teachings. We say this all the time from this pulpit. And I, and, and, and I can never stress this enough, but the greatest deterrent to theological, theologically wondering pastors is a biblically informed local congregation. It all rests upon the shoulders of the congregation because I believe that when the congregation encounters the word of God, when they study God's word and they know it, they can say that's not right and that's wrong and they can protect the flock from, from wolves who are in sheep's clothing. It is all of our responsibility to make sure that when we open the scriptures as a corporate body, that we protect the integrity of it and that we are constantly evaluating it against what the scripture or the standard is. Listen to verse five again. <clears throat> always, as for you, Always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Personal accountability or personal discipline is at the core of, of what it means to live within sound doctrine. The basis or the, the, the orthodoxy of correct theology begins and ends with faithfulness. See, the American church is educated beyond its faithfulness. What do I mean by the American church is educated beyond its faithfulness? We have more access to more Bible study, more resources, more things that can help us go deeper into our faith, more complex understanding around theology, around end times, and around all these different things that we are educated about the scripture beyond our personal discipline, beyond our personal identity in Christ Jesus. 
And that's why Paul, has, as he said, talks about this sound doctrine, how that, how that he is to be the steward in the churches of Ephesus as their pastor, how he is to steward the flock. He brings it back down to personal accountability and faithfulness at that. Paul has constantly impressed this on Timothy. As no pastor, no teacher, no person can lead without being first faithful. And, 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 and I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to hear this. Every one of you are a leader. You, you, you might not think of it today. You might, you might not seem to contextualize it. But man, if you're an aunt, you're an uncle, you're a grandma, you're a grandpa, you're a mom, you're a dad, you're a teacher, you're a fireman, you're a police officer, you are a leader. You are a leader of people. Just by your position alone, you are a leader of people. And if there's one thing that we need for those who lead us, it is faithfulness. It is to know that we can count on them when the going gets tough, when the, all the chips are pushed to the center of the table, that they will be faithful in exercising the things that they are called to do. Mom, when your kid is crying in the middle of the night, the last thing your, your kid needs to hear from you is, I'm too tired, I'm not getting out of bed. You wouldn't dare do that, would you? No, you would get up and you would begin to take care of your kid. In the same way, as Christ followers, we are called to rescue those who are in dire need. We are called to be faithful in our personal relationship with Jesus because it opens doors to the world. But when we are educated beyond our practice, when we are educated beyond our um, everyday life, no one wants to be around us. Because we espouse things that we don't live in our own life personally. And that's why Paul says, always be sober-minded. What's he saying? He's saying, keep a clear head. Be serious. Be, be, be sober. He's not talking about, like, be sober in, in a terms of drinking. But he's saying, keep your sanity about you. Keep your head screwed on right. In colloquial terms, he says, don't freak out. We must not lose our heads when we face opposition or hang our head when we are discouraged. We must remain calm and sane like an airline pilot who's going through turbulence. As leaders, as moms, as dads, it's okay to be ruffled a little bit. But let us remember that Christ has called us to have kind of this fixed mindset about ourselves. We must, fall, we must avoid falling into the, these, these kind of pitfalls when facing difficulty. And, and I kind of got a few different pitfalls, and, and I call it headedness, that I want us to think through this morning. We must avoid being fat-headed. What do I mean by fat-headed? Being puffed up with pride. This is something that I struggle with myself sometimes. In fact, Molly said this morning, she said, man, you can be dogmatic sometimes. And if Molly said it, well, it's normally true. But the truth is, is even when it comes to dealing with our kids sometimes, we can find ourselves being so dogmatic and, and, and puffed up with pride and big-headed that we believe that we are absolutely fundamentally right. And the truth is, is all our kids need from us is a little bit of patience, a little bit of time, and a little bit of soft-spokenness. So 
I think all of us can hear sometimes, you're wrong and it'd be okay and it shouldn't fly all over us when we find out that we're actually wrong. So Paul's saying, avoid being fat-headed, avoid being puffed up with pride. Paul's also saying, avoid bobbleheadedness, bouncing around to every doctrinal fad. You guys have been around folks like that, right? Who every new YouTube conspiracy theory around scripture, every new YouTube conspiracy theory around the government, or every new little mythological thing, every genealogy, every little thing they see to be here, there, everywhere. Oh my gosh, you can't keep up with them. And Paul's saying for us to be steady to be steady in our doctrinal understanding of the scriptures, to be steady in our understanding what it means to faithfully follow Christ Jesus. He says to avoid being empty head, getting involved in ignorant controversies or stick headedness, having our mind filled with immorality or, or lust to constantly be pressing into that thought, man, I want this, that, that thought of self-gratification, that thought of I've got to do this for myself. Oh my gosh, I got to get my fix. I got to get my fix. And lastly, to avoid hot-headedness, to respond to our critics with sinful anger instead of gentleness. Is there anybody in this room who say, hey, I, I, you know, I probably have a few headedness to work on there. Yeah. How many of you would say, man, when I'm at work, I am a perfect angel. Right? It's, it's at work where it seems to be like you, all of a sudden your fist, you want to get fist to cuffs with people sometimes. That doesn't happen here, right? Instead, We're to be led by the power of the Holy Spirit, possessing level-headedness, possessing stability, self-control, steadiness. And what better example of this than Paul himself? Later in this chapter, as we're going to see in a couple weeks, when everyone had deserted Paul, when he was to give his defense in front of Nero, this is what he says about those folks. All the people who were so-called friends of Paul, all these people who were so-called fellow disciples with Paul, he, and they, they've left him, they've, they've ran away because the going has got tough because there is certain death on the other side of this particular issue. He says, may it not be counted against them. Paul doesn't respond, I hope they all die and burn. He's not reckless. He's self-controlled. He's sober. He's merciful. Likewise, may the Lord give us strength to be sober-minded. When you face difficulty this week, when you face problems in your life, pause. Don't think about yourself. Don't see that person as your enemy because the scriptures tell us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against our brother or our sister on the other side. That's not who we're fighting. 
but it's against the rulers, the principalities of the air. Our life is spiritual warfare. Everywhere you go, it is spiritual warfare. Whether you, whether you see it or you don't see it, the truth is that's not where your battle lies. Therefore, we must keep our mind about ourselves. That's why he, he finishes this next statement, because he says, be sober-minded. Okay, great, that's easy. The next part, endure suffering. Enduring suffering has been a common theme of Second Timothy. Timothy has been reminded multiple times that suffering will be a fact of life within gospel ministry. But here specifically, within the wider context of this passage, it is to, uh, uh, it is to be avoided when being, uh, it is to mean basically avoid being bitter in hardship. He says, be sober-minded as you get the crap kicked out of you. Be sober-minded as people tell you you stink at life. Be sober-minded when your kids tell you you're a bad parent. Be sober-minded in your suffering. Don't be bitter in your hardship. He's not to quit because of the difficulty or respond with violence to hardship. But as said previously, he is to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Looking into this personal letter, there is much for us to glean. As we look into the hardships of our life, as we, as we face temptations, as we face illness and cancer and, and, and all these different things, as we lose our jobs, as we face broken relationship, we should not be surprised when they come. As Jesus warned us, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus said this in, in Matthew 16, He says, in this world you will have trouble. The good news is, is he followed it up with this encouragement. But take heart. I have overcome the world. We can endure by his grace, church. We can endure by his grace. To endure is more than just continuing to exist. I want you to hear this quote. To endure is, is more than just continuing to exist. It is continuing to exist in the same manner as before the suffering began. Are you level-headed in the midst of your sorrow? Are you level-headed in the midst of your suffering? Do you have a relationship with Jesus that when the winds blow, you have been anchored to the rock of ages? Do you have that relationship? Or are you right now like a sailboat without a rudder? As the wind blows, so goes your life. As the circumstances change in your day, so goes your temperament. If I'm being honest, this is a place that I myself am deficient. All it takes sometimes is the smallest little prick of a finger and for my whole world to seemingly be turned upside down. And I want to tell you that that is, that is not sound doctrine. That is not sound living as Paul calls Timothy to do. He says to be sober in the midst of our suffering. Paul's response to suffering 
was not to buckle under the weight of the circumstances, but to realize that Christ had called his church to endure hardship. Paul said that he rejoiced because in his flesh he was filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Every time Paul was beaten, chained, hungry, he had identified more with Christ in his flesh. Paul could rejoice because suffering in his flesh for the sake of the church is a privilege, and he was doing it alongside Jesus in his mind. Let the hardships that come from following Jesus lead you to prayer, not to despair. Let the hardships that come from following Jesus lead you to prayer, not to despair. When you face hardship tomorrow, when you, when you do, because you will, you're going to face something, whether it be with your kids, whether it be with your spouse, whether it be with the gosh darn TV remote because it won't work. You're going to face some form of hardship tomorrow. And when you do, don't let it shake your firm foundation for the day. Don't let it shake you and make you just angry mad. Don't let it hit the panic button in your mind. But take a moment and pause and seek the Holy Spirit. Because what we know is when we seek the Holy Spirit, we will be empowered with the fruits of the Spirit. Peace, patience, kindness gentleness, self-control, and love. Let us seek the Spirit. Furthermore, remember that we speak out of an overflow of our hearts. Therefore, fill your heart with the gospel daily. Keep your attention on Christ, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8. What am I saying to you? I'm saying the greatest deterrent to you living a rudderless life is having a daily quiet time. Having a time for you to sit down and open up the scriptures and to hear the voice and the word of God. And you say, maybe pastor, I don't know how to do that. You you say to me today, I don't know how to do that. I'm gonna hook you up with a book today. I'm gonna put it in your hand and I'm gonna teach you this here method or I'm gonna give Nathan to you. He's gonna stand up and he'll talk to you about here all day long. We will teach you how to read the word and how to understand it. Verse five, as for you, be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The sum of all of Timothy's ministry can be found right here. Preach the word in the work of an evangelist. The work Paul has in mind includes broadly all that he had written to Timothy in the letters of First and Second Timothy. The immediate context, however, has to do with reaching the word of truth in a truthless world, to, to cast the word of truth into a truthless world. He wants him to keep preaching the Bible, pointing people to Jesus and loving Christ's church. Count Z or Nicholas Zinzulov, missionary count of the 18th century, said it this way. Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. In other words, complete your assignment and then go home to your Savior. Shouldn't that be the call for us as well? 
As, as I look at this, that, that, we are to, that we are to not neglect this sound doctrine, that we are to endure suffering, and that we are to, that we are to protect the church, and we are to, to fulfill our ministry by doing the work of evangelists. Isn't that the call for all of us? Matthew 28. The call is for us to faithfully ex- ex- um, execute the Great Commission, to go into all the world and to make disciples of the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The call of us is upon our lives is to make disciples that make disciples, to execute faithfully the Great Commission, and then to die and be forgotten, to go home to our Savior so that we can hear the words. Good job. Well done, my faithful servant. Because the truth is, is the riches of this world are fleeting. The gratification here and now is only momentary, but the riches found in Christ Jesus, church, is eternal. So we fight to preserve sound doctrine as a church. We fight to teach correct theology because what we know is heaven is eternal and the gushy feeling that we give people when they give them their fake facade of saying, oh, it's okay, live in life how you want is fleeting. It is momentary and will pass away. It is a path that leads to destruction straight to the pit of hell. And unfortunately, that's the reality of what the scriptures tell us. In summary today, there are four daily activities for us to perform coming out of this text. Number one is to keep a clean head. It's to keep a level head. To endure hardship when we are pressed on all sides. To do the work of an evangelist, to seize every opportunity to share people, to share with people the good news of Christ Jesus, that he came and that he lived a perfect and sinless life, that he was tried and he was convicted of crimes that he did not commit, that he was taken to the court square, stripped of his clothes and beaten with a cat of nine tails. 39 times he was hit with shards of bone, glass, and metal. The scriptures say that he was beaten so much that he was marred beyond recognition. And from there, the Roman soldiers put the cross, the crossbar of the cross on his back and told him to march up the hill towards Golgotha, the skull. I'm not making this up because some book, some ancient book said it, but there are multiple attestations that tell us that Jesus Christ more certainly lived on this earth than George Washington was the first president of the United States. There are more documents that support that of Christ Jesus, a man named Yeshua, somewhere between circa 30 and 33 AD, died under Roman rule of the perfect Pontius Pilate. Upon that hill, Golgotha, naked, 
the Savior, the creator of heaven and earth, was nailed to a cross. Three nails pounded into his body in excruciating, agonizing pain. Jesus at this point is already dehydrated. He has lost blood. He's probably going, moving in and out of state of consciousness. In fact, just the night before in the Mount of Olives, he has this rare condition happen where he is under such stress and under such duress, knowing what is coming. That the scripture said that he begins to sweat blood, that the capillaries in his body begin to burst, allowing blood to come forth. And so Jesus is under this immense pressure. Why is he under this immense pressure? Because what we find in the garden, he says, God, if there be another way, God the Father, if there be another way for this cup to pass from me, then, then please do. But if if it is your will, if it is your will, God, I will drink from it. What was that cup? That cup was the wrath of God the Father to pour upon God the Son that he would absolve us of all of our sin, all of our shame. That upon that cross, as they lifted him up, the Lamb of God's blood was spilled out that he might cover the sins of all of us. Why? Why? Because it came back to the law. The law teaches us where there is no shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Because against us and God the Father, there was this chasm that stood between us from the time of Adam and Eve until the time of Moses. None of the sacrificial system. Each year required a lamb to be sacrificed on the Holy of Holies <clears throat> on the day of Yom Kippur. The sins of the nation could be pushed back but those sacrifices on the day of Yom Kippur each year were not sufficient to cover all sins for all people for all time. But on Golgotha, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. It was pointed at you and me. Jesus took our place. He stood in our position. And that is this work of an evangelist, is to tell people that Jesus came, he died, and he didn't just die, but he rose again. Conquering sin, death, shame, forever, 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 forever. That in him, that if we confess him as the Lord and Savior of our life, in him we can have freedom from our bondage, freedom from our shame, freedom from our sin. That we can have peace of mind, that no matter what happens to us in this life, no matter what happens to our kids, that if we call Jesus as Lord, one day we will rise again. One day we will be victorious. Do the work of an evangelist that we may fulfill our ministry. God has called you to ministry, church. He's called you to ministry. He's called you to faithfully minister to your family, to faithfully minister to your friends, and to tell them the glorious riches that can be found in Christ Jesus our Lord.